In today's feature report, we have the latest edition of Civic Conversations, a podcast collaboration between the League of Women Voters and WFHB. In the February installment, host Jim Allison speaks with Susan Williams, professor of law at the Maurer School of Law at Indiana University. You can find this program online at WFHB.org and wherever you find your podcasts. This is Civic Conversations, a podcast collaboration between the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County, and WFHB. I'm Jim Allison, your host, and our producer is Becky Hill. You can find Civic Conversations every month on WFHB at 93.1 and 98.1 FM. Today, we welcome Susan Williams, professor in the Indiana Maurer School of Law here in Bloomington. Thank you for joining us today, Professor Williams. Thank you for inviting me, Jim. Now, your research specialty is gender equality. Please tell us what is gender equality and how has COVID-19 affected it? So thank you very much for that question. I'm I'm really grateful to be given the opportunity to try to define this uh, difficult concept. I think a lot of people have different ideas about it. I would suggest that Nancy Frazier, who is a political theorist, has come up with a lovely way of thinking about this that helps to organize the information. And she says there are three parts uh, to the equality between groups. One part has to do with redistribution of resources. So we're talking about material resources here. So for example, if women are poorer than men, if their economic status is not as good, but also we're talking about educational resources and healthcare and other things like that. So one part of equality is equality in terms of resources. The second aspect of equality is in terms of respect. Here we're turning to culture. We're asking about cultural attitudes and stereotypes, about media representation, about even the educational materials in schools and how they represent the groups. So equality requires equality of respect as well. And third, we're talking about representation in decision-making positions. Here we're asking whether the group has equal decision-making power, and that would include political office, but also economic power like running businesses and power within social and cultural institutions like media or schools or the arts. One thing I think it's important for your listeners to know is that women in fact are disadvantaged on all three of these dimensions. So globally, in terms of poverty, the majority of people in poverty are female because of lower wages for women, because of lack of work, because of the unpaid care work that they do. Globally, educational rates for women are poorer than for men. Two thirds of the illiterate people in the world are women. And health rates for women are also poorer. In the developing world in particular, women have less access to health care. They have high maternal death rates, lower nutrition, and of course, women suffer from violence that affects their health as well. Um, globally, the rates of political participation are also very discriminatory against women. Uh, In terms of legislatures around the world, only about 25% of the members of legislatures are women now. Um, And that's a big jump that it's taken recently. Um, Only four countries anywhere in the world have 50% or more women in their legislature. Um, And of the ones that do, most of them use a gender quota to get there. So we're still struggling to get women equality on all of these dimensions. 
Okay, let's talk about the pandemic, which I think everybody agrees, everybody knows the pandemic has been especially hard on women. Do you expect any long-term impact on women's progress? So the, the big worrisome effect has been, in fact, the women who have left the labor market because of the pandemic. Um, and employment status is really important to women's equality. It has a uh, ripple effect on all the other things I talked about, health care, political power, cultural representation, and so on. So we really need to make sure that this does not lead to a long-term loss in employment status for women, or we will be seeing a drop in equality across all the indices. Okay, there's a recent United Nations study of 38 countries which reports that COVID is actually reinforcing traditional gender norms, both social and cultural. What do you think about this report? So it's an interesting and disturbing uh, statistic, um, it, but not surprising. Right? That is, in a crisis, people often turn to the past, they look to older ways of doing things, they feel insecure, and so they want the comfort, the security of the familiar. Uh, so it's not surprising that people would be turning in these directions. But I think it's important for us to remember that history shows us that a crisis can also be a moment of opportunity for change and for cultural growth. Uh, if we think back to the Second World War, it brought us Rosie the Riveter, and when there was a need to ramp up production of war material and the men were off fighting, the women ended up in the factories, and as a result, we ended up with more childcare, more daycare, we ended up with communal kitchens. There was a lot of creativity that uh, arose around the need to respond to that crisis. I'm hoping that we will find similar ways of dealing with COVID. We can learn a lot from our own history, can't we? We really can. And, and let me just say in particular, being at home is not the problem for women. Um, it's being at home with the additional care responsibilities that come with having sick family members and having children who are not in school. So it may be that we could look at the multiplication of work opportunities at home as an advantage for women in the long run, as long as we can get children back to school and better allocate care responsibilities. Exactly. Now, your research has taken you to some pretty far-flung places, Africa and beyond. What have your travels taught you about gender equality that you might not have learned otherwise? Well, coming from an American perspective, Jim, it might be easy to assume that traditional culture is the enemy of gender equality. But what I have found in my work with women in many places around the world is that women value their traditional cultures. They value their religions, they value their ethnic groups, they value their local communities. And if gender equality is seen as a threat to those things, then women as well as men will resist it. So the important thing is to actually look within those cultures for the resources that can be used to build arguments for gender equality because all cultures have available arguments for equality. And we need to put the arguments for gender equality in terms that make sense within a specific cultural context. What I've found is that women are amazingly creative in generating these arguments in different cultures around the world and amazingly resilient in fighting for their equality against tremendous odds. Okay, we've touched on this already a little bit, but let me ask you, in terms of gender equality issues, how does the U.S. differ from other places you've studied? 
The truth is I'm more struck by the similarities than by the differences, Jim. Um, many of the issues around the world are the same, although they play out in different ways, of course, in different contexts. So for example, issues of violence, whether it's sexual violence or domestic violence or violence in the workplace, sexual harassment, this is common to women around the world, including in the US. Issues of economic and educational opportunity are common. Childcare concerns are common. Healthcare concerns are common, particularly with respect to reproductive health. And as I mentioned earlier, political representation is a common need and a common lack um, for women all around the world. Okay, let's go to court. How in particular can a country's constitution or a country's laws help or hinder gender equality? When I'm teaching about constitutional design to people around the world, I like to describe it to them by saying that the constitution is like the foundation of a house. If all you have is a foundation, you don't have shelter. Um, and if all you have is a good constitution, that will not be enough to get you the society you want, to get you the outcomes that you want. You need a lot more. But if you don't have a good foundation, then nothing you build on top of it is going to keep you dry in the rain or cold in the uh, warm in the winter. Um, you have to have a strong foundation in order to make the rest of it work. So we start with that. Um, and in particular, I think it's very important to think about whether your constitution suggests that all you need to do is stop discriminating or whether your constitution actually goes further and says, actually, the constitution requires us to promote equality, equality of outcome, equality of status. If it takes that second step, it can make a big difference. Okay, let's talk about conflict. What happens when constitutions or laws conflict with customs or traditions? And Roe v. Wade might come to mind. Yeah, so... In my work in other countries, I've run into this problem in a way that's much more profound even than in the US, because there are a number of countries around the world where customary laws are actually enforced uh, as a legal system, often with respect to things like family law, divorce, family property, and so on. And so if the customs include gender discrimination, which of course most customary systems do, um, then you end up with a direct conflict between that customary law and the guarantee of gender equality in the constitution in most of those countries. So that conflict is very stark. What I have found in this context is that you can't work on either law or culture in isolation from the other. You must work on the two together. So Changing the laws without addressing the culture is not going to help people. But similarly, we can't just be trying to change the culture and leaving the law alone until we get to some desired endpoint of cultural development. We have to actually be working on them at the same time. Uh, and to do that, uh, you need to draw on the cultural resources available. So just to give you an example, I had a wonderful conversation with a woman in Tunisia who was one of the members of the constitution drafting body in that country after the Arab Spring. And she told me that to get a quota so that there would be a substantial number of women in that body, 
part of what they argued was they pointed out to their male colleagues that Tunisia was founded by a woman, um, by uh, Dido, who is a figure from Greek mythology and in the legend um, that Tunisians adopt as their founding myth, Dido is the founder. Um, and so they used that cultural resource to help people understand why it was important to have women in the body making the constitution. A clever tactic, I must say. Uh, tell me, Susan, truly, do you think the U.S. has made any forms that truly, truly improve gender equality? We've done some. We've done well on some things, um, but not so well on others. Uh, to give you the overall view, we rank about 53rd out of 149 countries in terms of the uh, the relative status of men and women. Okay. Um, uh, globally, we are pretty good on pay equity. Uh, we still have a gap between men's and women's wages, but our gap is smaller than it is in most other countries. But we do quite poorly on a number of things where other countries like us, other Western uh, developed democracies do much better. So for example, childcare, uh, most Western democracies provide much more support for childcare than the US does, which of course helps women's employment status and their political participation and everything else. Most also provide more of a guarantee of healthcare. We are 70th in the world in terms of women's disadvantage um, uh, in terms of healthcare. Most of our similar democratic developed countries also have a better record on women's political representation. The US is 86th in the world in terms of women's political representation. I think most Americans would be shocked to discover that. Um, but you have to actually take this seriously and do something about it. And we haven't done that yet. Susan Williams, thanks so much for being there with us this afternoon. And to our audience, thanks for listening to Civic Conversations. This is Jim Allison for the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County. The League is a nonpartisan, grassroots, citizen-led organization that has fought since 1920 to improve our government and to engage all citizens in the decisions that impact their lives. In March 2021, please join us when we talk about women in politics with Nicole Brown. Nicole Brown is Monroe County Clerk of the Circuit Court.